Hi, it's Tom here. So this is the bit at the beginning of the podcast where we always say thank you to everyone who has been reading and listening and donating to us. But the reason we do this every single podcast is because we really, really mean it. It's been a weird year so far in a lot of ways, but the silver lining for us has been that Spiked has been growing. We've been going from strength to strength, and that's all because of you lot, really, particularly those who generously donate to us every month. Those donations, they're what have allowed us to expand our output, to bring you more polemics and essays and podcasts. And most importantly, it's helped us to push back against this mad, illiberal, identitarian time that we find ourselves in. So once again, thank you very much to those who give. And if you don't give, but you'd like to, please do think about making a donation today. All we have to do is go to spiked-online.com, click on the big red donate button in the top right corner, and then fill in your details. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the presidential debate, the COVID restrictions, and we ask, is everyone racist now? That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. That was the worst debate I have ever seen. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Will you shut up, man? Who is on your list, Joe? You get the final word. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. The first presidential debate took place this week, and it was roundly decried as a shit show. Though it covered a vast range of topics like the Supreme Court, racism, COVID-19, the economy, climate change and the riots, viewers were left none the wiser as to how a Biden or Trump presidency would deal with these challenges. Partly this was because nobody could get a word in edgewise. Trump interrupted Biden 10 times during one question alone and at least 128 times in the debate as a whole. Much of the post-debate commentary has focused on Trump's comments about the Proud Boys, a far-right group. Trump said he didn't know who they were, but nonetheless told them to stand back and stand by. Tom, what did you make of the debate? Well, it's it's nothing particularly different to say that it was a pretty absurd and uh, draining spectacle, most of it. There was one commentator who referred to it as like sitting through an argument at a senior bingo night at a nursing home in purgatory. And I think that pretty well captured the kind of dynamics (laughs) of the discussion. You had Trump, again, interrupting constantly Again, when Joe Biden said, will you shut up, man, as Sean Collins said on Spike this week, he did feel like he was speaking for the nation. But at the same time, again, Biden just kind of demonstrated his own shortcomings. Not only did he fumble over various of his lines, not only did he demonstrate that really he is just presenting himself as a safe option, as the option of things calming down for a bit of, do you really want this lunatic um, in the form of Trump running the country for a few more years? But again, just nothing particularly inspiring, nothing really presenting a inspiring vision for the future of America or how to get it out of the hole that it's in, not only in relation to coronavirus and the economy, but obviously the racial tensions which have been unleashed recently, the incredible polarisation, the mistrust and the destruction of so many different cities. So given the stakes are so high, the level of the debate is pretty absurd. And I think touching on that Proud Boys point that you made at the end, the fact that the main talking point after this has become this largely confected row about Trump allegedly not denouncing white supremacists, I think is a perfect example of just how depressing this whole 
whole debate is how kind of enmeshed in the culture war in in a sense all this discussion is how much it feels like in order to land a blow against trump as in last time it just feels people are desperate to just pin him as being some sort of racist at all costs when what trump represents and what is going on in america is far more complicated and knotty than simply there being this rise in kind of resurgent racism and a response to that so yeah i think the debate itself was pretty draining pretty depressing as was the inevitable follow-on discussions from it it felt like ella I don't know what anyone expected because the thing that surprised me most was that people were surprised because the style of the whole debate of it pretty much completely being about personal attacks and backbiting and mudslinging, even, you know, Biden obviously had been briefed to try and rise above it, but sort of understandably, he couldn't quite manage at certain points to not get dragged into it because Trump was just so relentless in terms of interrupting him. But it was always going to be this really shallow, really quite, uh, you know, unedifying experience because that's the nature of American politics throughout this entire presidential race. It has been not just from Biden and Trump themselves as individuals, but from both camps uh, and both parties, more an exercise in how to denounce the person of the presidential candidate rather than policy. And so on a serious point, on, from American voters watching that, it's really terrible because it's there are some massive things happening in terms of the pandemic, in terms of American economy. There are big political questions that need to be answered. And you watch the two hopefuls to hold one of the most powerful political positions in the world and they're calling each other man and stupid and, uh, you know, jeering each other about wearing masks. It was just so embarrassing, but, but this is where we're at. And the point Tom makes about Proud Boys is exactly right. And is, it's just, if I was the leader of Proud Boys, I'd be laughing to myself now because never has such a poxy outfit had such a wide airing. Um, and the people who have, claim to be anti-racist and want, I genuinely want to stop the kind of abhorrent views that these groups have are doing the exact opposite by obsessing over this. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable how one line, the stand back and stand by has been sort of fetishized to the extreme. New York Times is writing about how it's Trump signaling that these people should get ready. <laughs> you have other people saying that actually it's him saying, no, stop. You know, the, you can say the phrase stand by, meaning stand by and go or stand by and don't. It's just ridiculous. And you think for most people in America right now, the issue of a tiny white supremacist or whatever group is not at the forefront of their minds, uh, like not to kind of be alarmist, but there are still very many people dying from coronavirus in America, there's still many people who are on the brink of their lives being wrecked because of the the lockdown and the measures that have been, been put in place to fight coronavirus. For one thing, healthcare is a huge issue at the moment and there was very little time spent on it. So it has to make you ask bigger questions of what either of these candidates is going to bring for American voters. I mean, we know this already that this election, I don't think, is going to be decisive for making any real change in American politics. But God, it makes you depressed <laughs> watching it because you just think, what is the point? Yeah. And 
The debate came at a point in the election where Biden is ahead in the polls. He really didn't have to do much to win, quote unquote. As Sean Collins put it, he basically just had to prove he wasn't senile effectively, which is a pretty low bar to clear. And and I think even despite his poor performance, he did he did definitely clear that. Whereas Trump, who really had to win over some undecideds here, really, really struggled and was just, you know, aside from taking up so much time and jeering Biden the whole time and interrupting him, someone from the Atlantic described it as filibustering his own debate effectively. Even he couldn't press home some of the things that you might think have been to his advantage, you know, the kind of questions about the rioting, the questions about law and order, the questions even about critical race theory, but he wasn't able to make the case for himself in in any kind of coherent way. Mm. And not to linger on the Proud Boys for a minute, because there's been <laughs> enough discussion of them already, but I think the fact that their name even came up in that debate is a damning indictment of the state of US political debate, full stop. The fact that Joe Biden felt the need to name them and the fact there's been all this discussion about it afterwards. This is, on the one hand, is a tiny organisation, right? It's basically like something, it was originally set up by Gavin McInnes, one of the founders of Vice, as this kind of Western chauvinist fight club, effectively. They go around <laughs> brawling with SJWs. That's basically what they do. Very, very small organisation. And yet it's been exploded into this huge threat. There's talk about being white supremacists, which as far as I can tell is a little bit of a stretch because they have a lot of non-white members. They're just kind of all light plonkers, really. I mean, that's probably the best way that you could describe them. Yet the desperation to turn them into this kind of threat, and this has got a bit of a longer history. I think back in 2018, there was a kind of leaked FBI document, which was suggesting that they should be considered a domestic terrorist organization. That was later clarified by the FBI as not being accurate, but the kind of attempt to kind of puff them up or kind of similar, very small groups like them into some sort of huge threats to present them as white supremacists and to say that they're linked to Donald Trump. And therefore, that's another indictment of him and his presidency. It's just so unserious on the one hand, but also utterly myopic, you know, especially if you think about what's happened over the course of the past few months. And Brendan O'Neill points this out in his article on Spike this week. It wasn't the Proud Boys who have been burning down cities and who have been burning down courthouses or instigated or at least in, involved in a lot of the violence and the rioting that's been going on. It's been on the whole, a lot of out-of-town activists, some of them associated with Antifa, some of them are just people there looking to kind of stir up trouble. But the idea that these tiny little groups who go around just trying to start fights with Antifa activists from time to time in these little street battles are really the pressing threat facing America is absolutely ridiculous. And I think, again, Brendan makes this point, which is while there's so much of this very childish attempt to link Trump to racism, which again, he leaves himself well open to because he is fundamentally narcissistically incapable of denouncing anyone who he thinks supports him. Mm. And I think we saw this with his refusal to even denounce or claim that he even knew who David Duke was during the last presidential campaign. So he doesn't help himself in that respect. But at the same time, Given all that's going on, given that so much of this unrest, so much of this fury has been unleashed, not by old-fashioned racists or anything like that, but by this new racialism, this identitarianism, this kind of ideology, which groups like Antifa are certain exponents of, the fact that so much time is spent trying to puff up this threat whilst this is going on in front of their very eyes, it's ridiculous. And also, I think it's one of the things that even if Trump didn't land any particular blows during that debate, I think a lot of the discussion after not only because it feels like a replay of 2016, but if anything feels like a more grotesque and extreme form of it, given what's happened in recent months, that's the sort of thing that might actually help him out a little bit in the wake of this. Ella, did you want to come in? One of the other things I was thinking about when watching the debate is, you know, I think something that Trump got wrong was he 
thinks that he's going to play to his base by being this kind of bombastic, take no prisoners kind of figure, even being openly rude. He thinks it plays into that sense of the kind of anti-establishment, I don't care, I'm just going to do it, make America great kind of vibe. But it one, a lot of commentators are saying that it was just too much and that actually lots of voters are kind of really tired by his sort of chaotic presence at the moment. But also in some of the ways that he reacted to what Biden was saying, it reveals his very instrumental use of American voters, his fan base. So like when Biden brought up military vets and said, and brought up his dead son, Bo, and basically threw it at Trump and said, well, you call people a loser. Well, my son Bo wasn't a loser. And if there was ever a point of Trump to not go for Biden, it was over his dead son and he he couldn't resist. And I think there'll be lots of people who are watching that thinking, what does Trump think of his fan base? What does he think of his voters? That they just want to kind of blood bait all the time, that they aren't interested in any kind of real politics. And of course, the exact same is true for Biden. He thinks that he can just call Trump a racist and everyone's going to go, yeah, brilliant, we'll vote for you. American voters want more than that. I mean, it's good to remember that a huge amount of people don't vote and actually huge amounts of people are not going out and campaigning for either one. There's a serious lack of enthusiasm around this election, not just because of the restrictions of coronavirus, but because I think these two candidates are not just uninspiring, but the caricatures that they are creating of their own voters in the process of doing this kind of very panto-ish performance in these elections is actually really insulting. Sometimes there's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently, intelligently about a subject, or just to be the only one at a pub quiz who knows the answer. And that's one of the many reasons I love The Great Courses Plus. With this streaming service, you have the freedom to learn about virtually any topic and go way beyond the basics to acquire some seriously in-depth knowledge. You have the chance to learn unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields. You can get unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics such as modern political tradition, exploring the cosmos, writing fiction, or even Mediterranean cooking. And the best part is that with the Great Courses Plus app, you have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere. One course I've really been enjoying lately is Living with the French Revolution and the Age of Napoleon. The French Revolution is one of history's most exciting and fascinating events. And this course tells you not only about the politics and the ideas discussed by the revolutionaries, but also the historical specifics of the conditions that they found themselves in. So get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge and sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. They're offering listeners to the Spiked podcast an entire month of unlimited access for free. To start your free month trial, sign up today using our special URL. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. MPs voted overwhelmingly this week to renew the controversial Coronavirus Act, allowing the government to keep hold of its unprecedented emergency powers for a further six months. A threatened backbench rebellion fizzled away when it became clear that the Speaker would not select an amendment demanding parliamentary scrutiny of any of the measures. 
Local lockdowns continue to be enforced by ministerial decree. And at the time of recording, at least 16 million people, about one in four Brits, are currently living under local lockdown. That rises to 65% in Northern England and 73% of people in Wales. Outbreaks at and around universities have seen students singled out for even more stringent measures. Students in Scotland have been told not to go to the pub. Students in Manchester have been ordered to isolate, even if they don't have symptoms. And there was even talk last week of banning students from visiting their families at Christmas. Ella, (laughs) what have you made of the past week? It's a bleak picture, isn't it? But I mean, as you put it, the fizzling out of the sort of short-lived rebellion in House of Parliament against the restrictions or against the means through which the restrictions are being brought in, you should say more accurately, um, is quite important because I think, you know, that it kept that we have come to rely on an amendment, a very technical thing that actually for technical reasons couldn't happen to be the kind of only opposition to what's happening in terms of the government's insistence on continually bringing out unpredictable and often unannounced new law around the pandemic is pretty depressing. It's pretty pathetic that it, you know, essentially amounted to a squabble among Tory MPs that's presumably going to be fixed behind closed doors, that they that, you know, there have been negotiations and these particular politicians will be settled. And the rest of us are left on the outside thinking, you know, with the uh, increasing sense that what's taking place in British politics is more and more undemocratic by the day. I mean, we just have no control over what is happening to our lives, quite frankly. And then when you look at that in the context of the local lockdowns, I think we really need to draw attention to the fact that the government is getting away with saying, we're not going to bring in a national lockdown, or, you know, only if you sort of behave badly. This is something that we really don't want to do. And they, they put up the national lockdown as this real sort of threat or this unimagined thing that we, all of us need to really rally together and, you know, stay isolated so that we don't get this thing. But I mean, there are so many, as you pointed out, Fraser, regional lockdowns happening now with so little scrutiny that they don't need to do a national lockdown when these sort of regional and local lockdowns almost constitute the same thing. I mean, if you're living in Liverpool this week, Mm. it doesn't matter whether it's a national or regional lockdown, the conditions of your life are still the same. And so there's this kind of real bad faith atmosphere going on where we're sort of pretending that serious things aren't happening and that life isn't changing and that negative effects aren't happening because of this pandemic, because we're not calling it the national lockdown when in actual fact it is happening. And the thing that I've been struggling with this week, which is really difficult, is the fact that I think most people, or lots of people anyway, are saying yes when they're asked if they agree with the restrictions, are broadly supportive of the government, aren't particularly terrified of the virus, but worried about the fact that someone who's vulnerable might catch it. And so we're going along with this. But in short, it's sort of becoming the norm. And so it's getting harder and harder to not sound like a mad person or like one of these people with banners in Trafalgar Square. If you're posing some kind of resistance to what feels like increasing authoritarianism on the part of the government. So the question is, how do you oppose or challenge or ask questions about what is happening to our lives under this pandemic and sort of continual lockdown without sounding like you don't care about the effects of this virus, which are still very real. It's a real, it's a real dilemma. Yeah. I, th- I think with the local lockdowns, it's, it's just really important to, to emphasize two things. One is just how destructive they are, not only to people's social life, but to economic life and the threat that this, you know, causes to people's jobs, particularly in the hospitality industry. 
but also it's worth emphasizing that they just don't work. I mean, it's, it's really, really striking. There have been, of the scores and scores of towns and cities that have been put under and, and districts that have been put under local lockdown, only one in the entire country has ever been lifted. So that means it's only Luton of the whole country that has got back to the level of cases where the government decides it no longer needs the lockdown measures. Now, it was also true that Stockport and Wigan briefly managed to get their cases under control. The measures were lifted, but then they were reimposed again very quickly. So, you know, the evidence for these local lockdowns mm. is absolutely non-existent. And we do have to kind of challenge these things both on a kind of moral basis, but also on a kind of scientific basis to say, what are we doing this for? This does not work. We need a different way. We need a different approach. We need a different rebalancing of the risks, perhaps, because at the end of the day, we're using medieval methods to fight this plague of coronavirus. And I think we need to find something that's a bit, maybe a bit more advanced than that, but also just a bit more intelligent and a bit more balanced. Tom? Yes, no, definitely. And on local lockdowns, there's even talk of Luton potentially going back into those restrictions because <laughs> yeah. it's had a, a recent spike. I think it's worth dwelling for a second on one of the big stories of the week, which has been the situation that students have found themselves in, particularly at the University of Glasgow and at Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, where they've basically been interned. You know, <laughs> They've just been kind of <laughs> locked in their flats. You've seen entire halls of residents put into lockdown. They're not allowed to leave whatsoever after outbreaks were found in those halls, but not necessarily in their particular flats. There was a man met student who spoke to the BBC who pointed out that him and all his flatmates are tested negative. They're in their own separate flat, their own separate kitchen, et cetera. But even they're not allowed out for the rest of the time. Have, have had all these mad extra restrictions put on. In Scotland, you had the Scottish government and University of Scotland put out this guidance, which basically made clear that universities should punish any breach of the rules. So over and beyond the kind of legal questions, you know, mm. they could potentially lose their accommodation. They could be expelled from the university. They were mandated to download the app at MMU. You saw an email go around asking students to take down protest messages that they'd put up in their kitchen windows saying things like HMP, MMU and fuck Boris and a few other things to this effect. And I think it has really struck people. Obviously, there's a particular tragedy with students because they're one of the age groups who are the least likely to actually fall seriously ill with this disease. It was always going to happen that there was going to be more spread as a result of all these young people coming from different parts of the country. And also at the same time, they are going to be away from their families for a long time. They're not going around grandma's house every Sunday. So it's <laughs> the sort of thing where surely more allowances could have been made, especially given the fact that both universities and the government were urging them to take up their places in person. But I think despite the rightful anger um, and concern at the treatment of students, which seems even more extreme than other parts of, of the population, I think it's fair to say in some respects, there, it's only different by degree, really. I mean, if you think about the restrictions that we were all put under during the national lockdown, if you think about the local lockdowns, which as you've both pointed out, not so, not that local really when you stack them all up next to each other. And also, if you look at some of the rules that the government has been pressing through, you know, new restrictions in the past week mandating that dancing had to be banned in cafes and restaurants and that you could sing but only in groups of six and any more than six you know you had to be ejected i mean all of this is absurd authoritarian and as you say particularly with the data from the local lockdowns doesn't seem to be having any effect the, the main effect it seems to be doing is to be encroaching upon our liberties allowing the government to become more and more used to this authoritarian state of affairs and proving once again that there's a huge problem in this country with any opposition to any of this or even any kind of democratic means through which we can push back against this, which I think, as we saw with the uh, Tory rebellion fizzling out this week, a pretty depressing example of. 
I was talking to Rob Lyons, who listeners will know is a, a regular writer for Spiked and, and has written a lot of, on coronavirus and the regulations. He just said, well, whatever happened to the concept of nudge? You know, the government was really pushing this idea that they were going to work through this pandemic on the basis of behavioral science and that they were going to, you know, cleverly be able to manipulate us to do the right thing. That seems to be completely gone out of the window now to the extent to which you have as many sort of legal commentators have been pointing out, really quite serious changes in the law and new powers being announced at midnight, overnight, you know, minutes before they come into effect in a way that's really quite frightening. One that I picked out was the fact that now PCSOs, which people um, rather unfavorably call grasses with a badge, you know, police officers that aren't police officers that basically just patrol streets ratting on people, now have the power to use reasonable force to control or deal with people who are not self-isolating properly or not social distancing properly. I mean, what the hell does that mean? Does that mean I can get tackled by a PCSO now? Does that mean they can arrest me? These things show that I think not that the government has this grand plan for a kind of authoritarian lockdown. All the Tories are like, haha, now is our chance to really cripple the British public. It's actually worse. It's that they are flailing and in their sort of chaotic and really quite panicked response to this virus, they're bringing in these emergency powers that are going to be, as actually we've spoken about on this podcast, in terms of all kinds of political issues, that are often not repealed, that often stay on the statute books. And that is a very, very big problem for democracy. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. Labour leader Sakir Starmer passed his unconscious bias training this week. He had promised to take the anti-racism course in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. But did anyone really think Starmer was racist in the first place? Unconscious bias training is increasingly being rolled out in workplaces and educational settings in both the UK and the US, and it's just one product in an enormous diversity industry. The justification for all of this seems to be that we live in a systemically racist society and that racism could be lurking anywhere and in anything. For instance, a professor at Ohio State this week penned a grovelling apology in Inside Higher Ed over an article he wrote praising college football. He later came to believe that this was racist and that his enjoyment of the sport was a product of his uninformed and disconnected whiteness, and it meant treating black players as property who put their bodies on the line for his pleasure. Tom, <laughs> what are your thoughts? I thought the Keir Starmer one was particularly hilarious. I remember when it was first announced that Keir Starmer was ordering the Labour Party to go through this unconscious bias trading, including himself, and we just ran a little short blog on it on Spike with the headline saying, is Keir Starmer a racist? Because that's the question you're basically asking, is mm. because there's so much bad faith in this discussion. If you accept the idea that we all have these unconscious biases, you're basically accepting that, you know, 
everyone, including you yourself, hold these prejudices. What's funny is that when push comes to shove, no one actually believes this. I mean, we saw this in recent weeks with the hilarious battle between Princeton University and the Department of Education in the US. So Princeton's president, as did the leaders of so many different universities and corporations during the whole kind of BLM period, wrote this really pained letter about how he was going to take on systemic racism at his university how they needed to atone for this horrendous stain on themselves and then the department of education kind of called their bluff they said okay we'll have to open an investigation into you if <laughs> under civil rights violations you know if you're actually practicing racial discrimination as you seem to be alleging and of course now they're kind of reeling as to how to have a response to that very similar with the unconscious bias training stuff when you actually call people's bluff on this i think you get into quite an interesting space because mm. you demonstrate that so much of the discussion about racism today isn't really about racism at all when the institutions are accused of being or accuse themselves of being systemically racist when accusations of unconscious bias are thrown around what they're really talking about is not do you harbor proper racial prejudice not does your institution or your party or whatever have significant boundaries to the advancement of bme people or whatever it's basically do you hold to this new racialism this new ideology about race do you understand this problem in terms of it being this historic stain? Do you have this extreme racial pessimism? Do you kind of hold to all of those new presets which demand that we see everything in racial terms and we sort of re-racialize society? And what's interesting that in the mix of all of that, in that really kind of vexed discussion, genuinely kind of ugly opinions coming from identitarians, you know, as you wrote about on Spike this week, Fraser, that Ibram X. Kendi guy, the author who wrote that anti-racist book that's kind of very popular on with Robin DiAngelo, he went on this kind of absurd rant against interracial adoption which was shared approvingly by Richard Spencer, the white supremacist. So it's just so funny that in all of this kind of absurd bad faith discussion about what is and isn't racist, which so often is just a case of trying to have pop at people you dislike and of kind of moral preening on the part of people who admit to these sins, there is this whole new, very ugly, very almost old-fashioned racism which passes the dinner party test. If anything, it's people like Kendi who are paid tens of thousands of dollars to lecture us about all these sorts of issues. So that disconnect, I think, is very, very striking. That's the great irony is that they see racism everywhere, apart from in their statements, which are increasingly just plain old racist. Yeah. Ella? Yeah, I mean, the Keir Starmer thing is so frustrating as well as funny because what is the suggestion now that he, does he print off the certificate and keep it in his wallet to show <laughs> to people from this test? Is it like a badge that now no one can contest him on the issues of race because he's been proven by the unconscious bias test that he is in fact a good person? I mean, that's ridiculous. The question of whether or not he's racist or whether the Labour Party engages in policy that negatively affects black and minority ethnic people will be in questions of how they deal with immigration, how they deal with housing, all the kind of politics with the big P. The suggestion that he gets a tick now that he's taken this test is surely massively insulting to people who genuinely care about anti-racism. But it's always been about the egos and the identity of white people, this obsession with unconscious bias and white privilege. You know, it, it's all about Keir Starmer. It's not about serious racist issues in society or remaining prejudices. It's about the fact that this guy is now a good guy. And I was thinking about times when public figures or celebrities have had to do this kind of mea culpa about unconscious bias. And one of my favorite ones was Katy Perry, the singer, who did this really appalling interview where she at length apologised for, for example, wearing cornrows and braids and dressing like a geisha and saying that she just was, you know, she 
wasn't educated and she didn't know what she was doing. But really, it was it was an explanation about her personal journey and how she'd become this really great person that you should really love because she'd been in touch with her unconscious bias. It was so self-indulgent. And, it, you know, it really pisses people off. A friend of mine who is black and after the killing of George Floyd was very upset and very angry and was made worse by the fact that she said that she had floods of messages from white friends apologizing for times in the past when they believed they had been racist to her, you know, so sorry that I said you were a good singer in 2005 or something. And it completely belittled what she was feeling in terms of political anger about this act. And it trivialized the issue as if the killing of George Floyd was meant to inspire, you know, white girls across the UK to sort of soul search about a time where they wore bronzer that was too dark. I mean, it's really bad news for an actual considered approach to how you stop and defeat racism in society. And it's all about massaging white people's egos. It's really quite disgusting. Well, yeah, I mean, a good example of that is just the kind of corporate response to the killing of George Floyd, all of the pro Black Lives Matter adverts and, and sponsorships and things like that. That I mean, what better indication could you get that this is really about just making people feel good when you align a product with Black Lives Matter? What you're essentially selling is a kind of feeling of, of righteousness. And mostly that's about righteousness on the part of white liberals rather than, <laughs> rather than uh, anyone else. You have reminded me, Ella, also, the, the other form that this takes where we see racism everywhere is, of course, the microaggression, where racism, even so-called systemic racism, is less to be found in overt discrimination or, you know, disparities, but just in the kind of minutiae of how people interact with each other, the kind of phrases that people might say or the, the things people might say offhand or whether people are making enough eye contact or too much eye contact or, or any of these really, you know, quite trivial things. And and I suppose we're, in a way, we're lucky to be having that kind of discussion because it's happening only because of the absence of macroaggressions, which, you know, really would be a disgusting thing if that were common today. But on the other hand, it, it does just drain the seriousness of racism of any content, you know, to throw around the word racist all the time and to see it lurking everywhere, it just completely diminishes our ability to actually fight the real thing when it does rear its ugly head. It's also just such a lie that the people who engage in this unconscious bias stuff believe it. I mean, I, I for not one second believe that Keir Starmer was sat at his kitchen table saying to his wife, you know, Jesus, I really don't know if I'm going to pass this test. I I just really hope that I do. I mean, it's a, such a ridiculous idea that mm. people wouldn't know whether they're racist or not. You do. It's whether or not you have prejudices and hatred towards people of another race than you. I mean, it's simple. And yet it's spun out into this sort of over-intellectualized thing, which bears no relationship, as you say, Fraser, to the day-to-day -day real instances of injustice, which you know take a backseat to all this kind of academic masturbation a lot of the time, I have to say. It's, <laughs> it's a simple point, but it's worth pointing out with the unconscious bias stuff. And Carrie Clark wrote about this on Spike this week. She's done a report for the Free Speech Union and all of this, is that it's complete bunk. You know, it's based on this implicit association test, which time and again, meta-analysis has failed to find any co correlation between these alleged 
unconscious biases and actually discriminatory behavior in practice it seems to just you kind of do it on a computer matching kind of faces to attributes and it seems to largely test reaction speed which is why older people tend to fare quite badly on it she actually uh, likens it as a to a woke form of astrology as far as it's just (laughs) about as accurate as that and actually predicting any of this stuff so it's nonsense but at the same time it's absolutely everywhere i get emails i'm sure all of us get emails all the time or hear stories all the time about the number of people working in different workplaces who are being forced to put through this stuff a friend of mine recently has been put through not only microaggression training but also allyship training whatever the hell that is just at this general white collar job he has it's everywhere it's absolutely absurd i think we're going to see more and more instances of people getting in trouble for refusing to actually take part in it more so than we've already seen actually the fsu has some good stuff and good faqs on how to push back against all of this stuff but that's why it's so important that we do because not only is it everywhere not only is it divisive but it's also nonsense yet almost in the blink of an eye it's become a new ideology that we have to bow down to, not only in the political sphere, but in our workplaces and in the inner recesses of our minds, apparently. So more than ever, I think people have to be brave about this stuff to the extent they can. Thanks for listening to The Spike Podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.